the Stock Car Racing Time Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Today, you're listening to Episode 22, the 1997 running of the Miller 400 from Michigan Speedway in Brooklyn, Michigan. The race would be run on Father's Day, June 15, 1997. With it being Father's Day weekend this weekend, I wanted to give a special shout out to all the dads out there and say, hope you have a very happy Father's Day. Racing is such a great sport that's shared among sons and fathers, and there's so much great bonding, and there's so many great family traditions in NASCAR too as well. So I've shared on this podcast before that my dad was not a big race fan. His racing orbit basically was the Indy 500, and he was very committed to this. Every time when the Indy 500 came around on that Sunday before Memorial Day, we were typically watching the race. To him, it was kind of like the horse, the big Triple Crown horse races, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont Stakes. Even if you weren't a race fan, that was the race that you tuned into. So I'm sure it was a little bit odd for my dad when I really had little interest in racing other than the Indy 500 that in 1996 when I started following NASCAR Winston Cup racing. I'm guessing he figured it was just a fad and after half a year or so, I would fade away from having interest in racing. And in the 1996 season, I've talked about this before, I kind of started following halfway through the season and was what I would describe as a Winston Cup snob. So what that meant is that I pretty much exclusively watched NASCAR Winston Cup racing and didn't really have any interest in any other racing series. But man, when that 1997 season came around, I was all in. I was going to consume everything NASCAR possible. And it's kind of like when you're peeling the layers back of an onion and I just kept discovering new things. I'd kind of known about the Bush series in 1996, but I was like, wow, this is a pretty interesting series. They run these shorter races on Saturday and there's some Winston Cup drivers in the field and there's other up and coming drivers. And then you had the truck series racing at all these unique short tracks, really hard racing, probably the most rough and tumble racing series in the late 90s in NASCAR racing. And then I discovered suddenly they show these goodies dash races with these tiny little cars and they're racing at Daytona, racing 160 miles an hour around the racetrack. And there's the ARCA series. And then you start watching RPM tonight with John Kernan. And he turned me on to so many other racing series. Suddenly, you know, I wanted to watch world of outlaw racing or USAC silver crown or midget cars and got interested in IndyCar and cart. So I think for my dad, he pretty much figured out by, a little bit into the 1997 season that I was going to be a pretty serious NASCAR fan. And I have to give my dad a lot of credit. I don't think he had a lot of interest in racing, but because I became interested in racing, he became interested in racing too as well. I can't say that he knew every driver or that he understood every single track or the strategy of a lot of the races. And he wasn't going to watch every race start to finish, but he definitely had knowledge of the sport. And because I was interested in the sport, he became interested in the sport too as well. And so I have to tell a great story. You know, I was itching to be able to see some live racing. And I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. And there was a paved facility called Motordrome Speedway. It was in Smithton, Pennsylvania. And it was a half-mile track. And I begged and begged my dad. And in 1998, around my birthday, he took me to go watch some good Friday night short track racing. They ran on Friday nights at this particular track. And I'm sure for him, it was three to three and a half hours of the least interesting thing. As, we, as he learned about all kinds of different classes of racing, street stocks, late model cars, modified cars, trucks. I think the Allison Legacy Series was there. And I just ate it up and enjoyed it so much. Um, it was really, really entertaining. I'd never seen any racing in person. So it was cool to be able to see racing in person. 
uh, to watch the cars kind of beat and bang on each other. Um, and one cool note, at that time, there was a driver by the name of Richard Mitchell. He was from West Virginia, and he was really dominating at Motordrome. And he wasn't well-liked, as the drivers who dominate are not. And he actually ended up getting the opportunity to run a few races in the Bush Series uh, in the early 2000s, too, as well. But anyways, back to my dad, I really always appreciated that he started to watch racing because I enjoyed it. And he knew that it was something that he wanted to connect with me with. And, you know, when I went off to college and living my adult life, you know, if there was a great moment for Jeff Gordon, a victory or some type of crazy race, you know, he usually would call me after the race to talk about it. And it just always made me feel good that he showed interest in it too as well, even though I knew he wasn't extremely interested. It's what a good dad does. He gets interest in what his things, his kids do. Um, and it means a lot to me this day. My dad's 79 years old. Um, he's a great man. He's a great grandfather. And so if you're listening, dad, happy Father's Day. I love you. You're one of the best dads a son could have. And the big stories coming into the race weekend at Michigan were some driver changes. So we had talked about on the podcast last week that the number one car had gotten sponsorship from RNL Carriers out of Wilmington, Ohio. And they had made the decision, along with Richard Jackson, that they were no longer going to have Morgan Shepard in the car. And there were rumblings about this on the TNN broadcast the week before in Pocono. So the decision was to put a relatively unknown driver named Jerry Nadeau in the car and he was going to drive the one car going forward. Morgan Shepard now was going to switch over to drive the number 77 car, um, the Jasper Engines Ford Thunderbird, which Bobby Hillen had decided to leave or been a mutual agreement to leave. Hillen had driven for a couple weeks after that decision had been made um, before Shepard started to drive for the 77 team. So a couple interesting thoughts on this. Morgan Shepard had actually done a pretty solid job in this number one car. Remember, the team started the season with absolutely no sponsorship. They had had an okay season the previous season with Rick Mass. had come on late in the season to have some decent finishes after they chose to part ways. But I wouldn't say expectations were extremely high for this team. Morgan had run really well at Rockingham. He was always very good at Atlanta. He came home third, which is an excellent finish, and had had some other pretty decent days. But... Sometimes sponsor decisions, sometimes Richard Jackson looking for the future. Obviously, Morgan was in his 50s at this point in time. So that all may have played a role in the decision. So before we take a look at some of the other big stories, let's take a look at how qualifying went down on Friday at Michigan Speedway. So Dale Jarrett was able to win the poll with a lap at 183 miles an hour and change. Joe Nemechek was the second fastest driver. Ricky Craven was third quick. Sterling Marlin had the fourth fastest lap. Ted Musgrave qualified fifth. It was Dahlenbach in sixth, Benson in seventh, Bobby Labonte eighth, Jeff Burden in ninth, and Jimmy Spencer rounding out the top 10 qualifiers. Mark Martin qualified 11th quick. Jeff Gordon was the 12th fastest driver. Jeff Bodine qualified 13th quick. Jeff Green, the number 29 car, was 14th quick. Continued to show some really good qualifying efforts. And Jeremy Mayfield who had had two really good runs in a row at both Dover and Pocono, finishing in the top five at the 15th fastest lap. Some other notables, Terry Labonte, who was tied with Jeff Gordon for the points lead, qualified 18th. Rusty was 19th. Ernie Irvin was the 20th fastest qualifier. Dale Earnhardt qualified 22nd. Bill Elliott qualified 26th. And Darrell Waltrip chose to take a past champions provisional and start in the 43rd position. 
As for the drivers who failed to qualify, Mike Wallace's tough season in the number 91 spam ride continued as he missed the race. Ed Barrier failed to qualify in the number 95 Sadler Brothers ride. Greg Sachs was still driving for Robbie Gordon in number 40, and he missed the race, which had to be frustrating for Felix Sabat as he now had had both the 40 and 42 miss a race this season. Morgan Shepard's first attempt at the number 77 car didn't go well as he missed the race. And Gary Bradbury, who'd actually gotten off to a pretty good qualifying start with the number 19 team. Remember, he didn't come over that car until the third race. He had missed for the fourth time. And interestingly enough, this would essentially be the end of TriStar Motorsports, the Mark Smith-owned team. They would not go out to California to attempt the race, and they would not attempt another race in the 1997 season. All right, so when we look at the point standings going into the Miller 400 at Michigan, Gordon and Terry Labonte were tied atop the points. Of course, as we talked about earlier, the ultimate tiebreaker is wins, and Gordon had six wins and Terry Labonte had none. Mark Barton had been red hot, and he is now just 61 points out of the lead. Dale Jarrett got back on track last week at Pocono. was 129 points back. Jeff Burton was the last driver to be within 200 points of the points leader. He was fifth in points, 183 points back. Earnhardt was sixth in points, 268 back. Bobby Labonte was seventh in points. Ricky Rudd, eighth in points. Michael Waltrip was ninth in points. And Jeremy Mayfield was 10th in points on the strength of those two strong runs the last two weeks. Elliott in 11th, Rusty in 12th, and Daryl Waltrip in 14th were a couple of the other notables and where they stood in the point standings. So the other big story from this weekend in Michigan was a big crash that happened in Saturday practice. It involved Jeff Burden and Jeff Gordon, and both drivers had significant enough damage that they were forced to go to a backup car. Jeff Burden was banged up but able to drive. And this was interesting. In this day and age, it was a pretty big deal to go to a backup car. I feel like in today's cup racing, someone has to go to a backup car. We kind of shrug it off. Oh, it's not really that big a deal. Not the end of the world. Um, And that's not to say that some of the better teams like Roush and Hendrick didn't have good backup cars at this time. But it certainly was a significant handicap to the team. And in addition to that, you're going to have to start way in the back too as well. On a track like Michigan, where there's not a lot of cautions, it doesn't give you a lot of opportunity to catch up from that perspective either. The Miller 400 from Michigan would be covered by CBS. This was one of four NASCAR Winston Cup races that they broadcast in the 1997 season. The other races were the season opening Daytona 500, the inaugural race at the Texas Motor Speedway in April, and they would also have coverage of the Die Hard 500 from Talladega, which was moving from its traditional July date into October. ABC would broadcast three races nationally, the spring race at Atlanta, the California 500, the inaugural race in Fontana, and the Brickyard 400 from Indianapolis. As we talked about in previous broadcasts, NASCAR Winston Cup racing was exclusive, was primarily a cable sport. The majority of races were covered by ESPN and TNN with a few by TBS. But there would be some national broadcasts, and this was a good time for a national broadcast. It was June. There weren't a lot of sports going on other than Major League Baseball as the basketball season and the NHL season had wrapped up. And this was an opportunity for NASCAR to get some exposure to the casual race fan. ABC probably figured the same thing the next weekend. It was going to be an inaugural race at the California Speedway and a 500-mile race that would be a chance to get the casual viewer to as well. So 
Dale Jarrett, the pole sitter, and Joe Nemechek on the outside pole led the field to the green flag for the Miller 400 at Michigan. They raced hard into turns one, and they raced side-by-side off of turn two. And then down the backstretch, Ricky Craven, who had started the inside of the second row, made a bold move, was able to drop his car down low, put Dale Jarrett in the middle, and then he was able to slide his car, Craven, back up to the outside groove off of turn four and was able to lead the first lap. Joe Nemechek was second. And Dale Jarrett got caught in the middle and lost his momentum after one lap was shuffled back to the fifth position. With two laps complete, Ted Musgrave was able to pass Joe Nemechek off a of turn two and move into the second position. It would be a terrible day for Kenny Wallace. He would only complete one official lap, blow his engine, and have to settle for a 43rd place finish. Early in the race, Dale Earnhardt was looking extremely strong. He had started in the 26th position, and just the first handful of laps had already moved his way up to 11th. Things were heating up up front for the lead as Ted Musgrave was able to get inside of Ricky Craven off turn two, and then he was able to complete the pass in turn four and get to the lead. Craven led the first five laps, and then Ted Musgrave assumed the lead on lap six. Dale Earnhardt continued to charge up to the field and had already amazingly worked his way up to the eighth position with not even 10 laps complete. The first caution of the race would come out on lap 10 as Mike Skinner wrecked in turn two, and backed his card hard into the wall. He would also have a did not finish in, for, finish in the 42nd position. Skinner was unhappy with Jeff Bodine and gestured him after the wreck under caution. But if you look at the replay, it really didn't look like that it was Jeff Bodine's fault. It looked like that maybe Skinner had initiated the contact when he came down the racetrack. The race would restart in lap 16, and we get a nice long green flag run with 46 consecutive green flag laps. By lap 17, Jeff Gordon, who had to start all the way at the back and drop to the rear of the field due to that practice crash, had worked his way into the 23rd position. Dale Earnhardt was continuing his charge up through the field. He passed Dale Jarrett and moved up to fifth. With 20 laps complete in the race, Ted Musgrave was leading, Ricky Craven was second, and Joe Nemechek was in third. That meant the top three never had won a NASCAR Winston Cup race. Bobby Labonte ran fourth, Dale Earnhardt ran fifth, Dale Jarrett was sixth, Jimmy Spencer seventh, Mark Martin, 8th, and Wally Dollenbach was running ninth. Jeff Gordon had got his way up to the 17th position after 25 laps were complete, and Dale Earnhardt had now impressively moved his way up to 4th. Earnhardt continued his charge up through the field. He was able to get around Joe Nemechek and move his way into the 3rd position. It was clear that something was amiss on Ward Burton's car today. He was lapped very early in the race by Ted Musgrave. Another driver who was moving up nicely early in the race was Ernie Irvin. He had started in the 20th position, and after about 30 or so laps, had worked his way up to 6th. So it was about time for green flag pit stops, and after leading 41 consecutive laps, Ted Musgrave came into the pits for a green flag stop, as did Dale Earnhardt. Mark Martin pitted and decided to go for right side tires, but Ted Musgrave decided to take four tires, and Ernie Irvin decided to pit on lap 47. This gave Ricky Craven the opportunity to lead three three laps, and then he came into the pits on lap 49. He put four tires on the car, and his Budweiser crew ripped off an impressive 18.2 second pit stop. Bobby Labonte, who always gets excellent fuel mileage, was able to lead another two laps before he pitted under green. Then Bill Elliott inherited the lead. And remember, Elliott had pitted under that first caution when Mike Skinner had, is- had issues around lap 10, and that meant Elliott could stretch his fuel load a lot longer. Gordon. Jeff Gordon, who had pitted, was able to unlap himself from Bill Elliott in turn three, and Bill came to pit road and was put on two tires. 
This gave Sterling Marlin the opportunity to lead a lap, and Jeff Burton led three laps as well. So as we talked about previously, a bunch of drivers who had pit under the first caution were able to go about 10 laps further than those who did not. All of a sudden, the CBS crew camera pans to Terry Labonte and reports that he has heavy damage to the right side of the car. He had hit the tur- turn one and two wall hard. And then you could see as he was limping around the track with a flattened right side of the car that he was leaving debris on the track too as well. Labonte made the hard left turn into the garage. He would get his car back out there to run some laps, but unfortunately for him, it was not a heavy attrition day at the Michigan Speedway, and he would ultimately finish in the 39th position, taking an enormous hit in the points. In addition to that, Steve Grissom was experiencing problems in the number 41 car, and he had to go to the garage too as well with an ignition problem and would finish 38th. Because of the debris that Terry Labonte had put down, NASCAR threw out the caution for the second time again on lap 62. The race would restart on lap 67, and the leaderboard was as followed. Rusty Wallace had the lead. Bobby Labonte was running second. Mark Martin was in third. Jeremy Mayfield, fourth. Joe Nemechek in fifth. Bill Elliott, sixth. Ricky Craven, seventh. Hutch Strickland having a solid day in eighth. Sterling Marlin in ninth. And Jeff Burden in tenth. Dick Trickle was going to restart in the tail end of the lead lap, and that gave us 28 cars in the lead lap. Terry Labonte reported that he had run over debris on the racetrack, but he was very, very angry and did not want to talk with anyone in the garage area. The bad luck continued to follow Joe Nemechek as another promising qualifying run went by the wayside when his engine blew up and he was credited with a 39th place finish. Bobby Labonte was battling his way up through the field. He got in the second one. He was able to drop to the inside of Rusty Wallace in turn two, was able to get around him, and then Rusty, unfortunately, was actually passed by both Bill Elliott and Mark Martin, too, as well. On the completion of lap 74, Mark Martin swung to the bottom of the racetrack and was able to pass Bill Elliott and Rusty Wallace coming off turn four. Rusty and Elliott attempted to draft back by on the front shots to get outside of Martin in turn one and two and clear and were cleared him off of turn two. Rusty was able to lead lap 77, but Bill Elliott grabbed the lead back on lap 77. And now Mark Martin was second. And Rusty Wallace was third. Mark Martin attempted to get inside the number nine 94 car, Bill Elliott on the front stretch, but Elliott still led at the start finish line. Earnhardt continued to run strong, and he was able to make an outside pass on Ricky Craven and pick up the fifth position on lap 79. Bobby Labonte was able to pass Craven, too, as well, and he moved up to six, and Ricky dropped back to the seventh position. Mark Martin was able to pass Bill Elliott on the bottom of the racetrack in turn four, slide up the hill, and was able to get the lead at the start-finish line over Bill Elliott. He also barely led the next lap as he and Elliott were side-by-side as they flashed past the start-finish line. But Elliott was able to make the pass on Martin on the outside of turn two using the momentum. CBS was finally able to talk to Terry Labonte, and he reported that he had ran something over and was trying to stay out, but eventually shredded his right front tire and also damaged the right front air dam too as well. Rusty Wallace and both Mark Martin had a scare as their cars both slowed and both had the pit due to having flat tires. So on lap 91, the field was running as followed. Bill Elliott had the lead. Dale Earnhardt was second. Ernie Irvin was third. Bobby Labonte was fourth. Ricky Craven was fifth. Gordon was in sixth. Dale Jarrett was in seventh. 
Jeff Burton was in eighth, Jeremy Mayfield was in ninth, and Jeff Bodine was running tenth. Bob Labonte was able to eventually get around Dale Earnhardt, and at the halfway point of the race, Bill Elliott was leading, Labonte was second, Irvin was in third, Earnhardt was dropped back to fourth, Craven was fifth, Jeff Gordon had worked his way up to sixth, Dale Jarrett was seventh, Jeff Burden was eighth, Jeremy Mayfield was ninth, and Sterling Marlin was running tenth. On lap 105, Jeff Gordon was able to get around Ricky Craven, and after starting all the way out back, he'd worked his way up into the fifth position just past the halfway. Bill Elliott and Ernie Irvin both made green flag pit stops for four tires, and that gave the opportunity for Bobby Labonte, Jeremy Mayfield, and Darrell Waltrip to all lead laps as green flag pit stops continued. Terry Labonte got his car back out from the garage area to at least try to make laps and hope to pick up any positions. Mark Martin was now the leader of the race because he, had, remember, had made an unscheduled pit stop back on lap 87 and could go a little bit longer. So he led at lap 120 with Elliott running second, Irvin in third, Earnhardt in fourth, Craven in fifth, Gordon in sixth, and Dale Jarrett in seventh. Unfortunately, the engine was continued for Jeff Bodine as he had yet another blown engine and would be credited with a 40th place finish. The third caution of the race would come out on lap 125 and there would be yellow flag pit stops. The top three drivers decided to take two tires. Musgrave got to the lead, Mayfield was in second, and Hutch Strickland was in third. Mark Martin was fourth, Bill Elliott was fifth, and it was Craven, Jarrett, Irvin, Jeff Gordon, and Bobby Labonte rounding out the top 10. The race will restart on lap 132, leaving 69 laps to the finish. And all the drivers were going to need at least one more pit stop to be able to make it to the finish. When the green flag came out, Ted Musgrave was able to quickly pull away on the first lap after the restart. And after just a few laps, he had already built a 1.4 second lead on his teammate Mark Martin in the number six car, who had been able to get around both Jeremy Mayfield and Hutch Strickland to move into the second position. Jeff Gordon was moving his way up. He was able to get around Derek Cope, and he picked up the eighth position on lap 139. Mark Martin started to slowly but surely close in on Ted Musgrave, and on lap 147, he was just half a second behind Ted Musgrave. Mark Martin, a few laps later, was able to make the pass on the low side of Ted Musgrave in turn one. With 50 laps left in the race, or 100 miles, the three-quarter mark in the race, Mark Martin led, his Roush teammate, but Ted Musgrave was second, Bill Elliott was having a great day in third, Ernie Irvin was fourth, Dale Earnhardt was fifth, Jeff Gordon was sixth, Dale Jarrett was in seventh, Derek Cope was in eighth, Bobby Labonte was ninth, and Jeremy Mayfield was running in the tenth position. A couple laps later, Bill Elliott was able to get around Ted Musgrave and move into second, and then Irvin was able to pass Musgrave and get his car moved into the third position. Dale Jarrett and Dale Earnhardt both passed Jeff Gordon, moving up to the fifth and sixth position and dropping Jeff back down the seventh. When CBS came back from commercial, it was announced that Bill Elliott had taken the lead, Ernie Irvin was now running second, Mark Martin was in the third position, but the top four cars were really very tightly packed. There was a hairy moment when Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt made contact on the front stretch, getting into turn one with about 40 laps to go. Neither car was worse for wear, they both continued on their way. Ernie Irvin was showing a strong car, and he suddenly wanted to get the lead from Bill Elliott, but was unable to do it. Eventually, Irvin was able to dive in low on the racetrack in turn three and then slide his car up in front of Bill Elliott in turn four. On lap 163, Ernie Irvin took the lead. Dale Jarrett, who had been back in the fifth position, was now beginning to close on the top four drivers. 
A few laps later, we saw Ted Musgrave falling a little bit back from the top three cars, and he was losing a bit of ground. It would be time for green flag pit stops, and it would be very interesting to see what strategy teams opted for. Uh, because most would be pitting with around 25 laps to go, maybe a little bit less for teams that were stretching their fuel, it was unlikely that they were going to need four tires. The thought process would be that a lot of these teams that had to pit with 20 or more laps to go would probably take two tires because it would probably take the same amount of time to dump the fuel into the race car as well. The first of the leaders to make their final green flag pit stops were Mark Martin, Dale Jarrett, and Jeff Gordon, and they all chose to take two tires. A few laps later, Ernie Irvin pitted on lap 174 and took right side tires. It was an excellent stop for the Texaco Haviland crew. Bill Elliott led lap 175 but pitted on the following lap and took two tires as well. It was bad luck for Rusty Wallace. He was already having a mediocre day at Michigan running just in the 18th position when he was assessed two pit road speeding penalties and forced to make two stop and go stops. Ted Musgrave was able to gain the lead, but he still needed the pit and his crew decided to bring him the pit road on lap 179 and they took fuel only. Musgrave got back onto the track, was running on the apron, but it was clear that Ernie Irvin was going to be able to pass Musgrave, and as Musgrave built up speed, Irvin passed him in turn two. Bill Elliott was able to pass Ted Musgrave during commercial and move into the second position. With 15 laps to go, it was reported that Ernie Irvin had a three-second lead over Bill Elliott. With 10 laps to go, the, following, the running order was as followed. Ernie Irvin was leading, Bill Elliott was second, Ted Musgrave was third, Mark Martin was fourth, Dale Jarrett was fifth, Jeff Gordon was in sixth, Dale Arnott was running seventh, Derek Cope was eighth, Bobby Labonte was ninth, and Jeff Burton was running tenth. Ernie Irvin had actually slightly expanded his lead over to Bill Elliott to three and a half seconds. Terry Labonte decided to pull off the racetrack and would be credited with a 39th place finish. Mark Martin was able to get around his Roush teammate and move into third, and Jeff Gordon was able to get around Dale Jarrett on the backstretch and finish off his pass in turn three to move into the fifth position. With two laps to go, Irvin still had a comfortable three-and-a-half-second lead over Bill Elliott. The white flag came out for Ernie Irvin in what had to be a very emotional final lap, and Irvin had no problem cruising around the two-mile facility and getting back to the start-finish line first to win his first race of the 1997 season. It was Ernie Irvin's 15th career victory. He had led the final 21 laps of the race and 33 total laps and had started in the 20th position. Ernie Irvin had completed the race in 2 hours, 36 minutes, and 31 seconds with an average speed of 153 miles an hour. The race had been slowed three times for 18 laps, and his margin of victory over Bill Elliott was just under three seconds in a race that featured 26 lead changes. The second-place finisher was Bill Elliott, who had his best finish of the 1997 season, and it actually was the best finish he'd had since winning the 1994 Southern 500 at Darlington in 1994. Bill had led 46 laps. Mark Martin came home third after leading 23 laps and now had eight consecutive top five finishes. Ted Musgrave, Martin's Roush teammate, finished fourth, and he had actually led the most laps, leading 68 laps, and it was the best finish for Musgrave since he finished second at the Trans-South Financial 400 in Darlington in the 97 season. Jeff Gordon came home fifth, giving him 11 top fives in 14 races and an impressive drive in a backup car from the back of the pack. Dale Jarrett was unable to lead any laps from the pole, but he was able to finish sixth, getting another good run after a solid day at Pocono after he had three poor points-paying finishes at Talladega, Charlotte, and Dover. Dale Earnhardt did not lead any laps, but finished seventh. Derek Cope had his best run of the season, number 36 Skittles Boniac, with an eighth-place finish. Bobby Labonte 
finished ninth, leading three laps. Michigan native Johnny Benson came home 10th. It was the best run of the season for Lake Speed. He was the 11th place finisher. Jeremy Mayfield was twice, 12th, snapping a streak of consecutive top five finishes. Ricky Rudd finished 13th. Jeff Burton was 14th. And Jimmy Spencer finished in the 15th position. Notable finishers included Daryl Waltrip in 24th. Rusty Wallace in 29th after having two pit road penalties late in the race. Jerry Nadeau in his first NASCAR Winston Cup start came home 36th in the number one car. It was a very difficult day for Terry Labonte. He had suffered that cut tire in turns one and turns two and slammed the wall and had significant right side damage to the car. The crew was able to repair the car and Labonte actually got back out to complete a fair number of laps. He finished 135 laps. But unfortunately for Terry, on this day, there was very little attrition in the field, and Labonte had to settle for a 39th place finish. One other interesting fact from this race was that Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, Dale Jarrett, and Terry Labonte all failed to lead a lap. This was the first time that none of those four drivers had led a lap since the 1994 race at Pocono. This would have a serious impact on the NASCAR Winston Cup points. Jeff Gordon would now be the points leader. Mark Martin moved up to second in points, just 46 points back on the strength of eight consecutive top five finishes. Terry Labonte dropped the third in points, now 109 points back. Dale Jarrett was fourth in points, 134 points back. Jeff Burton was fifth in points, 212 points back. Dale Earnhardt was sixth in points. Bobby Labonte was seventh in points. Ricky Rudd was eighth in points. Michael Waltrip was ninth in points. And Bill Elliott's strong second place finish moved him up to 10th in points. Jeremy Mayfield sat 11th in points, and Ted Musgrave was 12th in points. Ernie Irvin's victory jumped him up to 13th in points, and now he was just 106 points out of the 10th place points position. This particular race at Michigan had so much what I loved about late 90s cup racing and early 2000s racing before the chase. The points championship was super important. Every race counted equally. You could see the disappointment and frustration in Terry Labonte when he knew that the wreck was going to result in a very poor finish for him and he was going to lose a lot of ground at the points. He'd already realized that he was not leading as many laps as he had in his 1996 championship season, and he wasn't quite getting as many top fives either, so he knew every race counted. And Jeff Gordon had had three major problems, but now was going to have the points lead over Terry Labonte. And it really did emphasize the importance of how much every race was key. And I really feel like that it did help with the ratings because if you were a hardcore fan, you knew that you had to watch every single race because every single race could be a massive swing in the points. Every single race could have a huge impact on the point standing. So you always had kind of underlying every race. What is the situation with the points? And of course, it was a big deal to get in the top 10 of points because you got to speak at the banquet. And, you know, I feel like the TV partners made a big deal about talking who was in the top 10 of points and, and really emphasizing the point standings quite a bit. And they were a big story. And then you had the story of the race itself too, as well. Um, and what interesting storylines would come out of the race itself. And of course, this race would have some of the most interesting storylines. So you think about Ernie Irvin and that horrific accident that he suffered in August of 1994. You know, when it initially happened, those first couple of nights, they were talking that he might only have a 10 or 20% chance of survival. Um, you know, many would have considered a miracle if Ernie Irvin could walk again and drive his daughter to school. But instead, he survives. He goes through all this therapy. He makes this unbelievable comeback in the NASCAR Winston Cup racing. Everyone remembers that 
first race back in Cup Series at North Wilkesboro, how well he ran that day. He led laps. Then in 1996, he goes out and he's able to win two races. But in 1997, when it had been a difficult season for Ernie Irvin, he had not had a lot of success. He had had a lot of bad luck in that number 28 car. To go out there and to win at Michigan, the track that nearly took his life, was just an absolutely unbelievable story. And just you you couldn't write a better storybook ending than that for Ernie Irvin. Just a remarkable full circle event. The other interesting thing to think about is what would have happened if Ernie Irvin had not been involved in that wreck. So if you think back to the 1994 season, Ernie was nip and tuck with Dale Earnhardt for the championship. They both were, were doing really well. It was a very tight points race. Unfortunately, after Ernie was involved in that wreck and it was pretty obvious that he was going to be out for the season, it was pretty easy for Dale Earnhardt to go on and win that championship. He was able to cruise to his record-tying seventh NASCAR Winston Cup championship. And you think of all the impact of Ernie's injury and how it had on so many different drivers. Uh, So you think about the 1995 season. Of course, Jeff Gordon beats out Dale Earnhardt for the championship. Well, if Ernie Irvin's healthy, in 1995, does he win the championship, first of all, 94? And if he misses out in 94, does he come back even stronger in 95 with a really strong Ford team to challenge Chevrolet, who had the new Monte Carlo out? Uh, also, think about the impact that on other drivers. So in 1994, Dale Jarrett was still driving for Joe Gibbs' number 18 car. And with Irvin's injury, Robert Yates knew he was going to need a one-year driver in the number 28 car. And there were going to be a lot of drivers that were going to be interested in this ride. They would leave a steady ride to try to get in this car. And that's essentially what Dale Jarrett did. He was under contract with Joe Gibbs and decided to essentially get out of his contract to go drive for one year in the 28 car with no guarantee of what the future would be. And of course, this ended up being a genius move for Robert Yates, although Jarrett struggled some at the beginning of his time in the 28 car. He eventually won that race at Pocono. Uh, which was a huge turning point for him in 95. And of course, we know in 1996, got in the 88 car. um, And the amount of success that he had in the 88 car, the rest was kind of history. Spoiler. And I'm guessing most people listening to this podcast know this. But of course, Dale Jarrett went on to be the 1999 NASCAR Winston Cup champion, uh, being a second generation champion with his dad, Ned. But also think about the additional dominoes. So Dale Jarrett, one of the things that Joe Gibbs said is, you've got to find a suitable driver to get in the 18 car if I'm going to let you out of this contract. It just so happened that Bobby Labonte at that time was driving the number 22 car for Bill Davis. So Labonte came over to the 18 for Gibbs. He won three races in 1995, including getting his first career victory at the Coca-Cola 600. He followed up in 1996 by winning at Atlanta. And of course, that was a great family moment as he celebrated with his brother, Terry Labonte, as they did a joint victory lap. Terry celebrating his second NASCAR Winston Cup championship and Bobby Labonte celebrating that he won the final race of the season. And we know that the rest was kind of history for Bobby Labonte too as well. Spoiler, he became the 2000 NASCAR Winston Cup champion. So you just think back to that faithful day of Ernie Irvin and how much impact it had on three different careers. Dale Jarrett getting in the 28 car and eventually getting in the 88 car and opening up for Bobby Labonte to get in a better ride to get in the number 18 car. Uh, So when you look back, there were a lot of dominoes that fell um, due to Ernie Irvin's injury, which was extremely unfortunate. And you do kind of wonder what might have been for Ernie Irvin. You know, I've heard him on other podcasts, like the Dale Jr. podcast, say that he knew he was never really the same driver after he made his comeback. Uh, he felt like he was still a good driver and had a lot of natural talent, but he never was able to really 
be the driver that he once was early days in Morgan McClure racing. And then with Robert Yates too, as well. So some other great stories from this Miller 400 at Michigan, you had Bill Elliott started 26, finished second. And, you know, I think a lot of people are pulling for Ernie Irvin because of, you know, the Michigan storyline of the track that nearly took his life. But Bill Elliott was an extremely popular driver and everyone would have loved to see if Bill was able to get to victory lane. Great day for Ted Musgrave finishing in fourth too, as well. I feel like, you know, he was kind of always thought as the third driver at Roush. So it was pretty cool to see him lead the most laps and have a really solid day. It was awesome to see guys like Derek Cope and Johnny Benson both sneak up into the top 10 in the race. And this is something that I enjoyed about late 90s, early 2000 racing. I felt like some of the smaller teams, some of the single car teams, they weren't so overpowered. If they did have the right combination, the right setup, they could go out and they could have a great day. And they could surprise people, even if they weren't that consistent, or maybe there was a particular track where a team ran really well, too. So thank you for joining us for the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast. We'll see you next week when we take a look back at the inaugural California 500.